Well, please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Let me just kind of remind you where we are in our Sunday morning series as we go through the book of Acts. We're dealing with Stephen's story. And in Acts chapter 6, we're introduced to Stephen. He's one of the first uh, people who are established in what I believe would become the office of deacon. And he begins to proclaim, he's proclaiming the gospel in Acts chapter 6, and he runs into opposition with some of the Jews, and they level this accusation against him in verse 13 and 14 as he's before the Sanhedrin. It says, they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So, kind of two parts of this. He's saying, they're saying that Stephen is working against Moses and against the temple. Moses, the law, and the temple. And they said, we know this because the, the message that he's proclaiming is about this Jesus who's going to destroy the temple and change the customs. So, Stephen is going to give a very lengthy response to this accusation. And in his response, essentially what the Jews are saying is that he's preaching about this man Jesus, and Jesus is going to overturn all the things that God has done for us in his plan of redemption. The customs and the temple, Jesus is going to undo all of that. And what Stephen is going to do is he's going to say, look, let me, let me talk to you about the big story, the big picture, the big story of God's redemption. And he's going to go through essentially all the, the big themes of the Old Testament in one chapter. He's going to go through a whole history of the Old Testament. And as he does that, he's going to say, Jesus is not destroying what God has worked to accomplish. He, he's the fulfillment of it. And so he's going to say, look, here's how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham. That's what we're looking at this morning. The, the law is fulfilled in Jesus. That's what we're going to look at next week. And then the temple is fulfilled in Jesus. That's what we're going to look at, Lord willing, in, in two weeks. So kind of those, those three sections, the, the law, excuse me, the promise, the law, the temple, all of these things are fulfilled in Jesus. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to, I'm going to read all of Stephen's sermon. It's the longest narration we have in the book of Acts, the longest speech that someone gives. And uh, I'm going to ask you to, to stand with me as we look at the, the first section, then I'm going to let you sit down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay standing, and I'll, I'll keep reading uh, the rest of it. So go ahead and stand with me if you would, and listen to what, remember the accusation, this Jesus that Stephen preaches is destroying the temple, destroying the law. That's the ac accusation. And then here's Stephen's response. In the first section, he says, no, he says, no look, here's how the promise is fulfilled in Jesus. Beginning, let's start in verse 1 of Acts chapter 7. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and go from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession 
and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit, and on the second visit Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for some of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. You may be seated. I'm going to continue reading as now he talks about Moses and how the law is fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 17 But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing, them, one, of, and seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses 
who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness whom the angels, with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And we see the promise of the temple beginning in verse 44 that is fulfilled in Jesus our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Heavenly Father, this morning we recognize our, our need for a Redeemer, and we look to your Son as the, the promised Redeemer, and we trust in Him, and we trust in, in Him alone for salvation. Father, enlighten our hearts, help us to be convicted of sin, and help us as we're convicted of sin not to look within ourselves for salvation, redemption, deliverance, but help us to look to your Son and find forgiveness there. Help us to treasure the blessing that is your Son, Jesus, and we pray this in His name, amen. You've probably heard the word worldview uh, used before, and, and, and maybe you, you know kind of vaguely what a worldview is, or maybe you have a very developed definition of a worldview. What I understand a worldview being is kind of a, a perception of reality. My understanding of, of how life works, my perception of the world, my view of the world, worldview, and uh, Nancy Piercy has written a, a really good book called Total Truth. It came out some years ago. And, and in the book Total Truth, she talks about a Christian worldview, our perception of, of reality in life, and how that perception of reality should shape every aspect of, of what we think and do. And she brings up that a, a Christian worldview kind of has three components. There's, first of all, our... Uh, 
three components of our, our big story, kind of our meta-narrative, our big story about how life works. First of all, there's Christians who have a Christian worldview, have certain beliefs about creation, right? Creation answers the question, where did we come from and what's our purpose? That's kind of two questions, I guess. But where do we come from? What's our purpose? That's, that's revealed to us in creation. God created us for the purpose of worshiping him. And then we have the fall, the second part of our, our big story. There's the fall. The fall answers the question, what's, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world is we've, we've sinned. We've failed to walk in obedience to God. We're separated relationally from God because of our sin, sin that began with Adam. The final part of our, our worldview is redemption. How, and that answers the question, how does the world get right? How does the world get right again? How do we restore relationship with God? Well, redemption, we're redeemed through Jesus Christ because of his work on the cross, taking the punishment for our sins. We are saved by God's grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. So creation, fall, redemption, creation, what's the purpose of the world? How did I get here? The fall, what's wrong with the world? Redemption, how does the world get right? And it's not just Christians who ask and answer these questions. All people have some sort of worldview. Piercy talks about how the, the Marxist has a worldview. Where do we come from? Well, just, it's just a material world. What's wrong with the world? Private property. How does the world get right? Well, revolution, communism. That's how the world rights itself. That's where redemption and blessing is found. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, Piercy talks about her worldview. Where do we come from? We're biological beings, evolutionary. We're only biological. We, we, we come through evolutionary processes. What's, what's the fall? What's her fall? What's wrong with the world? Well, what's wrong with the world is Christian morality. It's oppressive. It, it keeps people uh, repressed and held back. What's, what's redemption? Where's salvation found? Well, in, in liberation, sexual liberation, in full liberation from the shackles of Christian morality, that's where Sanger found redemption and uh, blessing. All people have a worldview and a, and a big story that shapes that worldview that deals with these questions. What's our purpose? What's wrong? How do we get right? For the Christian, I, I think you would agree with me that part of our challenge is living in a way that's consistent with what we say our worldview is. So if, if I believe that I'm created to worship God, and I've failed to worship God and am now separate from Him, relationally separated Him with, from Him because of my sin, if, if I believe those things are true, what am I going to believe about blessing? I'm, I'm going to believe that the greatest blessing is found in Jesus Christ and the redemption that, that's found in Him. And our challenge as Christians is to live in a way that's consistent with that. So often, and I think you'd agree with, with me that you struggle with this as well, so often, I believe that blessing, that redemption is found in things other than Jesus Christ. I believe that, that salvation, redemption is found in some sort of financial situation being resolved or some sort of relational situation being resolved or a health issue being resolved or some sort of political outcome that I want. I believe that salvation, redemption is, is ultimately found in these things instead of ultimately in Christ. Now, how does that relate to our story this morning? and over the next few weeks. 
Stephen is addressing people with a worldview, these Jewish opponents. And these Jewish opponents, in their worldview, they believed the story of creation. They believed in the story of the fall, that there was a, a breach in relationship with God. But their, their story of redemption was off. They believed that, the, that God had redeemed them as a people. And then their, their perception, the people that Stephen is speaking to, their perception is that, that they were kind of the center of God's story of redemption. And salvation was going to be found in them getting their rightful place back. And the people that Stephen is speaking to are very upset that they are not reigning as they believe God would have them to reign. And furthermore, because they had the story of redemption wrong, they, when they encountered the person of Jesus, they believed that Jesus was a, a threat to God's plan instead of the fulfillment of it. So in other words, they believe this whole story of God's redemption was about them reigning in their kingdom, and Jesus was a threat to their kingdom. And so in their mind, Jesus was, was attacking and potentially trying to destroy God's plan of redemption. And what Stephen is going to do in this amazing sermon, this speech, this address, what Stephen is going to do is say, no, 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 Jesus is, is the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. All of God's plan of redemption has been pointing to the person of Jesus. In fact, here's the main thing that I want you to see as we go through the story this morning, as we begin to look at it. We see that Stephen is going to tell them that God's, God's promised blessing is meaningless without Christ because Christ is the blessing. That's the main statement, the main thing that I want us to explore together this morning. God's promised blessing is meaningless without Christ because Christ is the blessing. Christ isn't just some means to get to the blessing, Stephen is going to say. Not only is, not only is Christ not attacking the blessing, not only is Christ just a means to get to the blessing you want, Christ himself is the blessing and the people that he's addressing are missing it. So let's, let's first of all look at how he shows us that in the story of Abraham. Look at verses 2 through 8 with me. As we look at the story of Abraham, what we see is this. God promises to redeem a people so they will experience the blessing of worshiping him. And that word so is really, really important. God doesn't just promise to redeem a people so that they can be redeemed and reign as kings and in a, in a kingdom, God promises to redeem a people with a purpose. That purpose is, is that they can experience the blessing of worshiping him. Let's look at the text. Stephen has, remember, been accused of attacking Judaism. He's attacking their worldview. And so he starts with the Jew and God's plan of redemption. Genesis 1 through 11 is assumed, right? He says, okay, you guys know the story of creation, you know the story of the fall, now let's, let's talk about these things that you've accused me of, and let's start with the first Hebrew, the first Jew, Abraham, and let's talk about the promise that God made to him. This is the, this is the foundation upon which Judaism is built. He says, I want you to notice four things about what God promises Abraham. The first thing, notice, Stephen says, is that the promise, the promise is God-centered. Look at verses two through four. 
Stephen says, brothers and fathers, he's identifying them as they're, they're ethnically related, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. This is a very God-centered blessing. The blessing doesn't begin with Abraham and his righteousness. It begins with God, the God that Stephen calls the God of glory. And God sovereignly works to bring about Abraham's movement to the land that God promises apart from Abraham's work. God sovereignly works that even back in Mesopotamia. The second thing I want you to notice here about the promise, the promise is to future generations. The promise is future-centered. Verse 5, we, we realize that Abraham himself is not going to receive the promise. Even though he lives in the land, that's not the fullness of the, the promise. It says, God gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but the promise is future. He says, he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So here's Abraham, and God makes this promise to Abraham about his descendants before he even has a child. It's a future-looking promise. A third thing about the promise that's interesting to, to notice, the promise anticipates future redemption. And all throughout Stephen's speech, he's going to talk about God as a God of, who redeems, right? It says, God told Abraham, this is verse, beginning of verse 6, that this offspring that are going to receive his blessing, they're going to be sojourners in a land belonging to others, and they'll be enslaved and afflicted for 400 years, but God says, I'm going to deliver him. And then a, a fourth thing to notice, the fourth thing I think is important to notice, the, the promise that includes a promise of redemption is ultimately about worship. Look at what he says, verse 7. I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. Now, the people that Stephen is addressing had, had misunderstood the promise. They had emphasized the in this place. And, and certainly, in this place was an aspect of God's promise. The, the location was, was certainly a part of God's promised blessing. The land was part of that. But the land wasn't the ultimate. The land was a means to the end. And what is the end? What's the purpose? So that they can worship me, God says. The future blessing is about providing redemption so that people can worship. Stephen is saying, my gospel doesn't attack the promise God made. My, my gospel is a fulfillment of the promise. The land was a means to the end, not the end itself. Worship was the end. Now, I wonder, do we sometimes misunderstand God's blessing as well? I would suggest we do. <laughs> Think about it. Our worldview says, my purpose is to worship God. I've failed to achieve that purpose, and I'm helpless in my ability to do that. And God, in his grace, is promising me the ability to come into relationship with him to restore that worship. In other words, what, what's the ultimate blessing that I can receive? The ultimate blessing that I can receive is Jesus Christ himself as I come into relationship through my union with him so that I can worship God and fulfill my purpose. That means nothing else can be my ultimate blessing. My health struggles being resolved is not my ultimate blessing. My 
financial difficulties being resolved is not my ultimate blessing. Even my, my relational struggles being resolved with other people, that's not my ultimate blessing. John Piper uh, wrote an article this past week that was uh, somewhat controversial, uh, and it was entitled Policies, Persons, and Paths to Ruin. And, and part of it was that was controversial especially, you know, I, I didn't agree with all of it. I'm not going to get into the areas of disagreement, um, but, you know, I, I, um, I'm, I'm sure you can. Someone on Twitter is talking about it somewhere, I'm sure. Um, but there was a part of the article that I was uh, especially, that I was especially moved by and convicted by, and it was a section entitled Word to Pastors. And I, I I have a hard time thinking any of us would disagree with this section, and I, he, he prefaced the whole article saying, hey, some of these things are personal convictions, but, but this was convicting to me, and I, I want to read uh, this section to you and share my conviction with you that I think you would share as well. Uh, this is what Piper writes. He says, may I suggest to pastors this. He says that in the quietness of your study, you do this. Imagine that America collapses. First anarchy, then tyranny from the right or the left. Imagine that religious freedom is gone. What remains for Christians is fines, prison, exile, and martyrdom. And, and we would all agree that no matter how long America lasts, that's, that's ultimately, our, we, we see in Scripture, that's, that's our future, believer's future at some point in time. What remains for Christians is fines, prison, exile, martyrdom. Then ask yourself, pastor, ask yourself this. Has my preaching been developing real, radical Christians, Christians who can sing these words on the scaffold? Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Christians, Piper writes, who will act like the believers of Hebrews chapter 10, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Christians who will face hate and reviling and exclusion for Christ's sake and yet rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold their reward in heaven is great. Luke chapter 6. Have you been cultivating real Christians who see the beauty and the work of the Son of God? Have you faithfully unfolded and heralded the uncertainty riches of Christ, Ephesians 3.8. Are you raising up generations of those who will say with Paul, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord? Have you shown your people that they are sojourners and exiles, 1 Peter 2.11, that their citizenship is in heaven from which they await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Do they feel, do they feel in their bones that to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. Philippians 1.21. Or have you neglected these greatest, these greatest of all realities and repeatedly diverted their attention, pastor, onto the strategies of politics? Or you can fill in the blank with any. The strategies of politics or the, the latest movie quotes or the latest sports scores or the latest financial wisdom, whatever thing that we might be tempted to put in there in terms of what we, what we think our ultimate blessing and hope is. 
we pray for politics, we pray for our health, we pray for our finances, but not because those things are our ultimate end, right? We, we pray for those things because they're a means to an end. And someday my finances are gonna be gone, someday my, uh, all things are gonna be gone except ultimately Christ. My blessing therefore is not ultimately money, I can't buy my way to heaven, can I? My ultimate blessing is not in the government. I can't legislate my way to heaven. My greatest blessing is, is not found in my health. You know, I look around. There's some, there's some pretty healthy people in here. Uh, look, you guys look pretty good. The healthiest person in here, the strongest person in here, has, has a, an enemy they can't defeat. It's time, right? Whitney was, Whitney was cutting my hair on uh, Thursday, and, she's, and uh, every... I used to ask, hey, you seen any gray hairs? I've stopped asking. Um, she informed me, yeah, 10 or 15, 15, 20, 20, 20, something like that. I said, I don't want to know. That's fine. You know, Time, none of us can beat it. My ultimate blessing is not going to be in my health. It's not going to be in my finances. It's not going to be anything but Jesus Christ. What is our only hope in life and death? The catechism asks us that we are not our own, but belong body and soul both in life and death to God and to our Savior Jesus Christ. Abraham tells us as we look at the story of Abraham that God is promising to redeem a people so they will experience the blessing of worship. Here's let's look at, real quickly at Joseph. As we look at Joseph what do we see? We see that God continually keeps his promise to redeem by providing a redeemer. Now we, we looked at the story of Joseph a, a little while ago but Joseph, as we talked about when we looked at the story of Joseph, Joseph is a picture. He's the, the New Testament uses the word type, like a, a pattern. Joseph is a, a type, a pattern, a picture of Jesus. We see things in Joseph's life that point us to Jesus. Now, look at what Stephen tells us about, about look what Stephen tells us about Joseph. It says that his brothers were jealous of Joseph. They sold him into Egypt, but God was with them, and God is we're going to see throughout Stephen's speech here, God is a redeeming God, a rescuing God. It says he rescued him, gave him favors, established him. Now, a famine came into the land, and, and that land was in the land that God had promised him in Canaan. And Jacob hears about it. He sends the brothers of Joseph on their first visit, verse 12. And on the second visit, so in the words, they appear to Joseph again, and Joseph makes himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family becomes known to Pharaoh. And what does Joseph do? He delivers. He saves. He rescues. What's Stephen's point? Stephen's point is that God shows that he is redeeming God. And he continually keeps his promise to redeem by providing the means of redemption. And I want you to notice something, and we'll talk about this more in coming weeks, but I want you to notice that the redemption that God's people receive in the story of Joseph is not in the land. It's not the land. It's while they're in Egypt. It's through a person. 
And I think the point that Stephen is making look, is, look, there's nothing magical about this land. The land was a means to the end. The, the, the place is, God, is not where God has to be worshipped. The, the blessing is the Redeemer himself. So the blessing isn't the land that the, the people were in. The land experienced a famine. The blessing was in Joseph and his redemption. Now, what's, what's the point? Some of you are struggling this morning, and you're struggling with, with various things because you're, you're part of a fallen world. God has created you for the purpose of worship, and you have not worshipped him perfectly. All of us would agree with that. And now you're, you're struggling because you're in a fallen world. Your marriage is struggling. Your relationships with friends are struggling. Life decisions are difficult and, and you don't know what to do. You've, you've failed in parenting. You've failed in, in adulting. you failed in, in many different ways, right? And so now, what's your worldview going to teach you? So we're going to say, okay, I was created to worship God. Now, I've, I've failed in that. And what, what our temptation is going to be is to say this. Okay, once I, once I fix what I've done wrong in terms of failing in my purpose, then I'm going to be able to worship God rightly. So I'm going to, I'm going to fix my financial situation, get that right, and then I'll be able to worship God. I'm going to fix this marriage problem, and then I'll be able to worship God. I'm going to fix this whatever problem, and then I'm going to be able to worship God. And that's, that's not the story of the gospel. Stephen is saying, look, Jesus is the blessing. I don't, I don't get things fixed so I can come to Jesus. I, I come to Jesus. He himself is the blessing, and he's the one who restores me so that I can accomplish his purposes. God's promised blessing is meaningless without Christ because Christ is the blessing. He's not, we don't fix ourselves to get him, and he's also not the, the means for us to get ultimate, he's also not the means for us to get other ultimate blessings. Jesus himself is our ultimate blessing. Brothers and sisters, let's live in a way that's consistent with what we say we believe. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. We have Jesus we're part of his kingdom through faith in his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace of the gospel. We thank you that, that because of your finished work through your son Jesus, our sin has been completely and fully dealt with. And now, Father, we pray that we would live in a, in a way that's consistent with what we, we say we believe. We pray that we would cling to your son Jesus and, and cling to him alone for our blessing, for eternal life. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.